By 1924, Charles Otterbourne's transformation of Stoke Horham was so complete, it was difficult to remember life before he arrived. Otterbourne's new century works produced scientific and optical instruments, typewriters, telephones, dictating machines and gramophones, but perhaps dearer to Charles Otterbourne's heart than the factory was the village. Farm labourers' cottages, picturesque but insanitary, were hemmed in by ideal homes, complete with plumbing, gardens, and, a stunning innovation, electricity from the Otterbourne generator. The tiny post office, which in Stoke Horham's previous incarnation had also acted as a general store, tobacconists and sweet shop, had expanded into separate establishments in a new parade of shops along the high street and had been joined by a grocer's, a butcher's, an ironmonger's, a haberdasher's, a draper's, and a fishmonger's. There were allotments and a nonconformist chapel. There were tennis courts, a sports field, a workman's institute for lectures and concerts, and the Otterbourne Library. The library boasted a marble bust of Charles Otterbourne himself, complete with laurel leaves and an off-the-shoulder toga, erected, so the plaque underneath it said, by his grateful employees. If the gift of the bust was not quite as spontaneous as the plaque indicated, it was, nevertheless, sincere. An innovation Charles Otterbourne had not planned was the war memorial, listing among the dead his two sons, Alfred and Robert. A tombstone in the chapel graveyard covered the grave of his wife, Edith, who had died soon after her sons. If life in Stokorum under Charles Otterbourne's benevolent rule had a fault, it was, perhaps, that all this undoubted well-being came at the expense of a certain amount of liberty. Charles Otterbourne saw this as a virtue, not a failing. People needed to be organised. He applied this rule impartially to his own family and his employees alike. When his daughter, Molly, had shown a worrying interest in an unsuitable man, Justin Veerwood, a workshy Bloomsbury poet, He had organised her marriage by forbidding Veerwood and heavily approving Stephen Lewis, a fair-haired, grey-eyed, intelligent man with an engaging smile and a wicked sense of humour. Mr Otterbourne, who hadn't registered the smile and was oblivious to humour, only knew that Captain Lewis, lately of the Queen's Royal West Surreys, had an outstanding war record and a good grasp of business. The marriage was, of course, a success. Molly said as much when he asked her. One common feature of English village life, the local pub, was missing. Charles Otterbourne had, very early on, identified betting and alcohol as twin evils. Drink and any form of gambling earned instant dismissal. There was no redress. For those workers who did conform to his philanthropic tyranny, there was a well-paid job, a decent home, a doctor on call, and provision in the form of the compulsory pension fund for their old age. The pension fund. Hugo Ragnall, Charles Otterbourne's secretary, looked uneasily at the eggs and bacon on his plate. Why on earth he had taken eggs and bacon from the dishes on the sideboard, he didn't know. Habit, he presumed. Fried bread, too, he realised with a twist of revulsion. The smell made his stomach churn, and he abruptly pushed his plate away. "'Are you all right, Hugo?' asked Molly. "'You don't seem quite yourself this morning.' "'Not quite himself.' That wasn't a surprise. She doesn't know about the pension fund. I'm fine, he lied, forcing himself to drink his coffee. Molly heard the break in his voice, and her puzzled look changed to concern. She was a kindly soul, thought Ragnall, seeing the look. His heart sank as he thought of Molly. 
She would be caught up in the whole stinking mess, and there was absolutely nothing he could do. I didn't sleep very well last night, he said, knowing he had to respond somehow or other. And that was true. It had been past one o'clock before he had finished work last night, and what he found hadn't made for a restful night. Steve Lewis, Molly's husband, rustled the newspaper. That's too bad, he remarked over the top of the Daily Telegraph. Mr. Otterborn wants you to enthuse to this Dunbar chap today. Tell him how wonderful we are and all that sort of thing. I still think Dunbar's someone to treat with caution, he added. Oh, good God. Ragnall had forgotten about Dunbar. It could have been the war, or increased taxes, or cheap foreign imports, or simply the fact that philanthropy on a grand scale cost far more than it used to. But the stark fact was that Otterborn's new century products weren't the money spinners they once were. They needed to expand, and Charles Otterborn had approached Andrew Dunbar, a gramophone manufacturer from Falkirk, with use.